Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. More than 6,000 servicemen and women will spend Christmas on operations overseas. That's not unusual, but more than 1,000 in the UK who'd been expecting to celebrate at home have been put on standby to cover for striking workers. Many of them are going to miss Christmas to help us deal with the disruption from strikes, whether that's manning border posts or driving ambulances, and we all owe them an enormous debt of gratitude. Is gratitude enough, or is the goodwill of the forces being stretched? Also, Britain's top military officer says the UK must think big on the future of defence after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The alternative is that we become an introspective, cautious nation that looks the other way. But does thinking big really mean spending big? And what's the thinking behind the UK's multi-billion pound Skynet programme? 36,000 kilometres above the equator. These satellites provide secure communications to UK Ministry of Defence, the intelligence services. Many of us may be looking forward to our first normal Christmas since 2019. The first COVID vaccinations and then boosters, which the armed forces helped roll out over the last two winters, mean this festive season there are no official restrictions on our celebrations. But for the third year in a row, hundreds of servicemen and women in the UK have been ordered at the last minute to give up their Christmas plans. This time, though, it is to cover for striking workers, and it's proving contentious. This was Defence Questions in the Commons on Monday. At today's COBRA meeting, will the Defence Secretary tell other ministers in other departments they're too often using our armed forces to bail out their own department's failures, especially when he's making further deep cuts to the army? And will he tell the House now... In addition to those deployed on overseas operations, which he's mentioned, how many of our forces will be deployed or on standby uh, over Christmas in response to requests for military assistance he's already agreed to? I'll do the right honourable gentleman a deal. I'll raise that at Cobra if he tells his union paymasters to not go on strike over Christmas and not ruin the lives of our soldiers. Well, the Defence Secretary didn't give his Labour shadow any numbers in that answer, but here are the figures we've been told. 600 military personnel are being trained up as ambulance drivers, with another 150 assigned to give them logistic support. Also, 600 are being trained to cover for Border Force staff at ports and airports. That's along with well over a 1,000 civil servants. Before we dig into the politics of it all, let's understand the practicalities. Professor of Defence Studies Michael Clark, as always, is with us. And General Sir Nick Parker, former UK Commander-in-Chief Land, is also here. Nick, um, you have a lot of experience of these sorts of MACAs, military assistance to civil authorities. The huge security operation for the 2012 Olympics, and just a few months before that, you led the military preparations for a possible strike by fuel tanker drivers. What we're talking about right now is 1,350 personnel. That's almost exactly 1% of the regular armed forces. On the face of it, it might not seem like a big ask, is it? I think you you need to distinguish very clearly between what happened in the Olympics and what happened in things like the tanker drivers dispute. The Olympics, we were replacing in circumstances of crisis where unforeseen events, the collapse of the G4 contract, meant that we had to step in in order to effectively keep a global event running. And I think one should park that to one side in the context of what you're talking about today. Uh, The tanker drivers dispute was much more relevant in that it was there that we were 
told to provide an alternative capability that would replace the striking tanker drivers in order, in the words of the orders I was given, to replace the normal service that we've provided to keep the economy running. It's 10 years ago, so my memory's a bit vague, but we trained about 3,000 people in some highly skilled work to drive commercial tankers. Mm. And in, irrespective of the reasons why the military are being called in for MACA, are the figures, uh, when you compare to what you had to prepare for, 1,350 this time round, are, are they uh, not a big ask then? No, not particularly. And how do you get hundreds of servicemen and women ready to cover jobs like these in a matter of two or three weeks? That's a much bigger ask, because I think we sometimes make an assumption that the fantastic servicemen and women can do anything. And of course, that is not true. They are replacing some, or could be replacing some highly technical skills. That, and it's not only the skills of the individual, it's all, also the way that those are interwoven into a management system that will be very different from the way that we manage our business in the military. I mean, for example, in the tanker driver's dispute, I made this false assumption that we would set up a command center somewhere in the center of the country and the telephone would ring and they would ask us to take a fuel load of diesel to a Morrison's car park somewhere. And that was so far from the truth, the complexity, the different nuggets of fuel that were coming down the pipeline from Milton Haven that needed to be processed by a computer that I think was based in Manila with uh, somebody in Zurich who was managing how this thing was supposed to be maintained. I mean, this was a hugely complicated operation. And the provision of a bunch of very effective but military tanker drivers who did not understand the environment that they were going into was not something that you could do very easily in the space of three weeks training. So in that light, what about the what's being requested this time round? Is this a big ask? I would have thought so. I mean, I don't know how skilled you have to be to do what the, the jobs are that these guys are being, men and women are being asked to do. But if they're only being asked to do the sort of rump jobs that will then allow other people to go off and do the skilled work, that's fine. But it's pretty grueling and pretty testing if you were, you know, you thought you were going to Christmas and then you find yourself effectively cleaning the bins while somebody goes and does the more professional work. Yeah, Mike Clark, it feels like we're asking the armed forces to do domestic duties ever more frequently. Is that just a perception or is it the reality? Uh, well, I think it's become a reality. I was just totting up some of the significant uh, operations, and it's basically one every year. And so at the moment, Isotope is running, uh, migrants in the channel, Storm Arwen, that was a military operation or required it, Rescript, which was the COVID support, then floods in 2019 to 20, wildfires in 2018. Uh, Operation Tempera, which, of course, can run any time. That's counter-terrorism. That turned out for the Manchester bomb and the Parsons Green bombing. Bridled was one that interested me. That was the Didcot power station failure in 2016. And so if you look you look back at these things, there's been a significant operation every single year and sometimes more than one. So my, I haven't, done, I'm, I haven't tried to do a, a proper analysis of this, but my impression certainly is that the military are turned out now on a regular basis for a, quite a wide range of things. And, uh, you know, as Nick was saying, there's only a certain amount that military personnel can do to help. Everyone assumes they can do anything, but they can't. They're, they're, they're people who will will tr will try their best to backfill for the specialists and do some of the jobs that can be done by people with a small amount of training. I just want to play you another clip from the Commons this week. The chairman of the Defence Committee, Tobias Elwood. Our military actually enjoy 
stepping in when the uh, government department occasionally cannot uh, manage, such as with flooding and so forth, or on the rare occasions that a strike may take place. But what we're seeing here this month is unprecedented, with so many uh, sectors choosing to strike exactly at the same time. Uh, Nick Parker, he says um, they enjoy it usually. In your experience, do the men and women of the forces enjoy these civil contingency jobs or is it a little more mixed feelings this time? Probably mixed feelings. I mean, I I make two points. The first is that I think that when you're called in to help and you know that you're helping the country at a time of need, uh, I think you, you feel motivated and particularly the response that you get from the public, which is it always makes you feel that what you're doing is worthwhile. I think that the risk with the context of a strike is that the public may have some mixed feelings about what you're doing. And the thing that I learned was that you have to be incredibly careful not to break the law, because some of the laws around picketing and what you can do in the context of a strike are pretty sophisticated, and you need to work extremely closely with the police to make sure that the people that you put on these tasks are not put in a vulnerable position. General Nick Parker, really good to speak to you. Thank you so much for your time today. Well, I said we'd dig into the politics of this as well. And to help us with that, General Sir Richard Barons, former head of Joint Forces Command. General Barons, good to speak to you. Um, if you were still at the top table of defence, what would you have been saying to Minister about these requests to cover for striking ambulance and border force work- workers? So I think uh, in the context of the current set of disputes, the common feature is that the military is being asked to provide vital services to the public and the armed forces know that the borders need to be kept secure sick people need to get to uh, hospital so the armed forces will will recognize in a time of need they can be asked to do this thing they see themselves to some degree as the nation's insurance policy and provided they are able to make a difference it's a reasonable thing to to ask them to do but they absolutely do not want to be seen to be part of the dispute or the politics of the dispute. So um, my advice would be, yes, yes, we can do this just enough time to get just enough people trained to do the job that's required. And and then I'd want a conversation about the the wider effects on, on the armed forces community. Michael Clark, uh, General Sir Nick Parker just made that point at the end when we were chatting to him about the, the legal position of the armed mm. forces. What, what, what are the dangers and what's the constitutional position on all of this? Yes, I mean, the armed forces have to act under civil and military law when they're in, engaged in these things. It goes back to the um, Civil Contingencies Act of 2004, and that establishes that the MOD and the armed forces have no statutory responsibility to prepare for any of this. But then there are some principles. They're not. This is not law, but they are principles. The first principle is that the, you should only turn the military out if it's a last resort, and that could be politically challenging at the moment. The second principle is that you can turn the military out or ask for military help where the civil authorities are, in the nature of the problem, overwhelmed, like floods or natural disasters. Or thirdly, you can turn them out when there's an urgency, that, that the civil authorities need some help for the next two or three days quick help before they can deal with the, the nature of the real problem. Those are the principles that are laid out, but they are quite politically loaded if it comes to 
driving tankers or filling in for civil service staff at border force uh, operations and so on. So it's very difficult to actually treat this simply like helping with flood defences, where, you know, local authorities, the local, the mayors and the chief executive, they always want to turn out the army. So if there's a flood somewhere in Blackpool, they want two lanks from Wheaton to be there. They, they don't want the territorials volunteering. They want real soldiers doing it. Um, yeah. There's always that sort of assumption that when, there's, when there are things to clear up, that you can get the army involved. But once it becomes a bit more political, which it is becoming now, it's very difficult. And General Barons, if you get one of these MACA requests and it meets the legal criteria, can you say, sorry, no, or, or is it effectively an order from ministers? So provided the Secretary of State for Defence has acceded to the request, it's a, it's a lawful instruction. The issue is not really one of lawfulness as so much as capability. And, and we need to recognise the armed forces are very small, so m many, many thousands more people work for Tesco's than are in the armed forces. So, and I think this came up in the context of the pandemic, there are real limits on the, the difference the armed forces can actually make if the problem is one of huge scale. And then there is one of capability, of, of skill. It has to be within the compass of the armed forces to do the job that's required. Yeah, and as we've been speaking earlier, there's a difference between responding to floods or COVID compared to covering for striking public sector workers. Um, may well be seen as picking up the government's own mess. How concerned are you personally um, that the forces are being dragged into a very politicised situation? So you're absolutely right that there is a difference between providing support in the face of, of a natural or man-made disaster, so floods and, and COVID would be in that bracket, and, and standing to, because there's an industrial dispute where... Um, I would be looking for a consensus from the government, the employers, uh, the trade unions and the, and, the, and the public to keep the armed forces out of the politics of the dispute and just recognise what the armed forces are doing are sustaining vital national services to health and security because that, that has to be done. Um, if there's a sense that the armed forces are being uh, used to manoeuvre an outcome to the dispute, that's deeply uncomfortable. And I would expect all the parties to do dispute to, to recognise that and not politicise the, the role of the military. And, and everyone should recognise the armed forces actually have a job to do, being the armed forces. So these things need to be kept short. And Mike, it's not gone unnoticed that the armed forces are themselves public sector workers whose pay is also badly hit by soaring inflation and who can't strike or indeed negotiate on pay in any way. Yes, and this is why it's such a delicate issue, because we may be facing what you might describe as a sort of rolling general strike for the next few months. And if the military are going to be turned out on a regular or semi-permanent basis, then that's very difficult because the army always bears the brunt of this because they've got the numbers and, and the basing and so on. And if you're not talking about really specialist jobs uh, like medics, then you, you normally turn to the army, although the other two services certainly contribute people. But if you look on the, the, you know, the websites and the, uh, the, te the telegram channels, there are a lot of very unhappy soldiers out there at the moment, very unhappy soldiers' families over service accommodation accommodation it's it's scandalous that it's back in the news now for you know here we are in a poor winter and the inability to get their service accommodation heated properly is mm. absolutely appalling and so I, I i sense i can't i haven't done any research on this but i sense that there's an awful lot of fed up soldiers and fed up soldiers wives and families out there this is not a good time to be using them if we're in for a, a sort of rolling general strike through from now to the spring or even later Michael Richard, thank you for that. But stay with us as we turn to a Christmas tradition, even if it doesn't feel especially festive. 
Last year, in the margins of this event, I said that our worst case intelligence assessments suggested a Russian invasion of Ukraine would unleash fighting on a scale not seen in Europe since the Second World War. At this time each year, the head of the UK's armed forces gets to make what is often their most important speech of the year, the Chief of the Defence Staff's Christmas Lecture. Well, this year, unsurprisingly, much of Admiral Sir Tony Radican's speech was taken up with Ukraine and what he called extraordinary and profound geopolitical crises. But around a third of his speech connected those, in his words, to the link between our security and prosperity. As work continues to refresh the UK's defence master plan, the integrated review, he said we need to think big. Might that mean an army equipped with anti-ship or hypersonic missiles capable of striking the enemy thousands of kilometres away? Might it mean a British carrier regularly deployed in the Indo-Pacific at the heart of an allied strike group? or an ambition to embrace drones on a far greater scale than previously envisaged, perhaps in the order of 10,000 by 2030? And do we tackle our productivity with fresh ambitions to double our outputs? Ambitious stuff, which sounds like it would have a big price tag too. The costs of defence may be high and the timescales lengthy. The value we derive is every bit as large. £320 billion to GDP annually, 410,000 jobs, 22,000 apprenticeships. Michael Clark, um, the bits I just highlighted from the whole half hour suggest one of the things CDS was trying to do was very publicly make the case for more defence spending. Is that a fair reading of his speech? Yes, I think so. I mean, CDS can never publicly say we've got to spend more on defence, but he can make the case that we need to change and change is never cheap and we need to do other things. And in a way, I mean, the, the other part of his speech was also, also links into that quite importantly, because Ukraine is so important. And the fact is, there's no hiding from it. There's no turning back. We're in the middle of now of an industrialised war. As General Sir Patrick Sanders said, CGS, he said, even if we are not going to fight, we've got to be able to go onto the continent of Europe prepared to fight. And he said, and doubtless we'd be heavily outnumbered and we'd have to fight like hell. But his, his idea, Operation Mobilize, is that unless we show that we can actually fight peer-on-peer -peer wars or conflicts now, then the, the game isn't worth it because we don't have till 2030, as we used to assume that we did, to get all this right. Uh, Sir Richard Barons, you were there, you watched the speech and you've made big speeches yourself as one of the UK's top military officers. How much do you get to say what you want and how much do you have to say what ministers in Downing Street want you to say? So I think we need to be clear that there's always going to be a difference between a statement that the Chief of the Defence Staff can make publicly like he did last night, where he's going to be able to talk in very general terms about the big themes that he believes we need to focus on and the private conversation that the Chief of the Defence Staff can only have behind closed doors in government. And what we, we try to identify are the things that are common to those two discussions. And I think in the context of what was said yesterday, there are three things that are very clear. The first is there's a very difficult discussion underway about how the world has really changed and is really changing. And this conversation is about, well, what does this really mean for, uh, for the UK's defence security and prosperity? And it's hard to understand, but also there's a reluctance to grasp it because of the implications. And then I think there's a second dimension, which is not only is the world more threatening, but, but as Ukraine is showing every day, the way war is fought is changing, particularly in the way that digital age technology changes um, capabilities and ways of working. And 
you know, when the CDS had 10,000 drones by 2030, he's acknowledging that these big shifts are there. And our armed forces know they have to grasp this, but you're going to need some money to do it. And then the third thing is, well, if the world is much harder and if we have to get ready for it in terms of improving our defense and security, it is going to cost more money for sure. And we also need to recognize we've done nothing but hollow out the armed forces for 30 years. So it's not as if we're starting from a particularly strong place. But we're trying to have this debate in the face of recession, the bill for the pandemic, the industrial disputes we've just been talking about. And we're doing it with civil society and ministers whose lives so far have not really been touched by the epic scale of this change in our security. So not only is this a bigger problem, it's never been harder to talk about money. And I think what was encouraging is the CDS was saying he's getting a decent listening to on this. But we'll know next year when the integrated review is revised and we see a budget in April, whether the government really has decided to grasp this nettle. And if it doesn't, then I think we'll be in a very, very bad place. And just finally, Sir Richard, um, how hard do you think the negotiation about the final version of CDS's speech would have been? So because it is the annual totemic event, it's something the CDS would share with the Secretary of State for Defence. They seem to me to have a very good relationship. But the CDS is the government's senior military advisor. He's not the Secretary of State for Defence. He doesn't make defence and security policy. So there would have been a, a very sensible discussion about what to say uh, publicly, because in the end, the Chief of the Defence Staff, powerful man as he is, is a servant of the government. General Richard Barons, good to speak to you. Thank you very much for your time. Mike, stay with us. News, discussions and analysis. This is Sitrep. The Defence Secretary has written to MPs about plans to launch a new British military satellite, Skynet 6A, in the next couple of years. He told them that were it all to go wrong, it could cost up to around a billion pounds with nothing to show for it. Now, don't panic. It is standard procedure to set out these contingent liabilities, as they're called. But it got us wondering, what is Skynet and why is it so important that the government is prepared to put such big money at stake? Dr. Bletham Bowen from the University of Leicester has given evidence to MPs on defence in space and is the author of Original Sin, Power, Technology and War in Outer Space. Skynet is the UK Ministry of Defence's satellite communications uh, constellation. So there's a handful of these satellites in geostationary orbit around 36,000 kilometres above the equator. And these satellites provide secure satellite communications to UK Ministry of Defence, the intelligence services and also other UK government users. So this is quite secure mobile and fixed telecoms capabilities for very uh, important communications the UK government doesn't want other people to be uh, listening in on. So very important communications. What kind of communications does it provide? How reliant are our armed forces and military capabilities on Skynet, for example? So the bandwidth isn't huge on these. I mean, they're increasing with every generation, of course, but the kinds of communications are very varied from um, very fundamental command to control to allow all the Royal Navy's ships to communicate back to HQ in the UK, to allow the British Army systems to communicate with deployed forces uh, wherever they may be uh, and also wherever the RAF are operating. So it allows for almost anything really that is too sensitive to be put on commercial systems. Can you just walk us through how the actual communication takes place? 
So it very much depends on the actual users involved. But generally speaking, you'll have, say now, the headquarters in the UK wants to communicate with military forces in Cyprus, for example. That will go through a ground station in the UK, beamed up to a Skynet satellite above the equator, about 36,000 kilometres away. And that is then relayed and beamed to the base in Cyprus, to a ground station there, and then that is disseminated through the local networks there. Uh, the same can be true then for um, mobile forces, so there could be small British Army detachments in the middle of nowhere. Um, that doesn't need a large ground infrastructure, so you can have mobile devices that can pick up Skynet systems. So you don't always need a, a large infrastructure, but of course the bandwidth is restricted with uh, smaller mobile devices. So how much does Skynet cost us? The UK MOD has said that the modernisation of Skynet to Skynet 6 uh, will be around £5 billion over the next few years. That really is the lion's share of what the Ministry of Defence is going to spend on what we can call space uh, acquisitions and investments over over the next 10 years, really. This is one of the few areas, really, where the UK Ministry of Defence has actually invested in its own operational capabilities in space, whereas the default setting for the UK in space has been to rely on the Americans. And does the UK actually need its own military communication satellites? We don't have our own intelligence gathering satellites or global positionings. These are done with partners. On the face of it, this might seem like something that might be better shared through NATO? Uh, well, that has uh, been a political decision that's been made by the UK government from um, the 1970s uh, onwards, really, um, after the, well, the UK tried to go down a, a NATO communications satellite system, and it was decided after that that the UK actually would do better with its own SATCOM system, which was Skynet. And really, the, the distinction between, say, having your own SATCOMs versus your own intelligence gathering, like imagery or signals intelligence satellites, light is that if you rely on communications from other countries, then they could listen in and eavesdrop more easily than they could your own more sovereign and secure and unique system. So secure communications is perhaps more important to have than um, a large intelligence apparatus where you can rely on the raw data from the United States, which the United Kingdom has been able to do. And it's just over 50 years since the first Skynet satellites were first put into orbit. We're now getting into the sixth generation of Skynet. Why the need to keep updating? So when the hardware gets very old, so these traditional satellites um, are built to last 15, 20 years, maybe sometimes even longer. And in that time, computer and radio hardware does change a lot. So uh, a lot of these systems just need to be modernised for the hardware perspective. But also software has changed uh, a lot in that time and you might need better hardware to meet software requirements. Um, different kinds of peripherals are around on the ground as well. So the equipment people have on the ground to talk to satellites. So it's, it's about uh, keeping up with the times just in terms of the technology as it changes and keeping up with the potential threats, whether it's um, cyber warfare or hacking into the computer systems or electronic warfare, the jamming of those signals as well. So keeping up with things as they change and as things improve, you, you probably are getting more reliable and greater amounts uh, of, of bandwidth uh, and communications for the new hardware. Dr. Blathenburn, thank you very much for your time. Thanks very much.
Mike, uh, there's no doubt that satellite capability has revolutionized military capability on the ground, but space is a hostile environment. Even if you discount things like enemy action, there are solar flares and space debris, which could wipe out our satellites. Do we still have a backup plan that doesn't involve this kind of high-tech comms? Not especially, um, because we are terribly dependent on space. Um, And you're right, there's an awful lot of debris up there. I mean, there are 8,000, roughly 8,000 working satellites at any given time and about 800,000 bits of junk flying around at different orbits. And we're just waiting for this junk to start colliding in a a sort of cataclysm that, that might actually close down one of the orbits. But, you know, I mean, I was in the States in 1983 when Star Wars was being talked about. And at the time, it was all to do with lasers, you know, shining laser beams onto satellites and killing them with lasers, which, you know, scientifically could be done. But it was a heroic engineering problem. Can you put them in space and maintain them and get the power source up there? You know, there was no scientific curiosity about that. It was just heroic engineering. The one thing that scientifically nobody knew in 1983 is could you you have the computing that would actually operate quickly enough? And so now here we are in 2023. Yes, the computing certainly exists, but you simply can't get over the heroic engineering problem. And so the Mm. best way of safeguarding what's there in space is the old-fashioned idea of redundancy. Got to have lots of satellites. And that's why the Elon Musk Starlink constellation is so effective in Ukraine, because there are 3,000 satellites up there, Starlink satellites, put up there by SpaceX company, which are available for the Ukraine's use. Another 12,000 are going up, and the Russians can attack all of them that they like, and they do. And they, you know, the Russians and the Chinese both have anti-satellite programs, basically, where they, they, they make one satellite crash into another. It's as mm. crude as that. But... With sheer redundancy, you can't get over 3,000 working satellites and maybe 15,000 working satellites in about a year's time. So, you know, are we in the, are we in the era of Star Wars? No, we're not. Are we mm. in the era of Space Wars? You bet we are. Professor Michael Clark, thank you so much. And my thanks to all of our guests. That is it for now. We'll be back with another SITREP next Thursday. If you want to listen online, you can now find us on the Forces News YouTube channel as well as our home at bfbs.com slash SITREP or wherever you download your podcasts. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening. Bye-bye. (laughs) 